you know, when I want to soundboard ideas or kind of think about career development or even working, that's where it came to be. Now, he was also my boss at one point. So maybe that was a little self-interested too <laughs> at one point, but it's not necessarily someone assigned posting that they need mentoring, but as a more senior professional or a person that's a little bit down the line, you can recognize that. You don't have to wait for someone to say, hey, come mentor this person. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end technology-enabled legal talent management solution, and we've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Thank you for joining us today. January is National Mentoring Month, which celebrates the dedicated mentors who provide wisdom, guidance, and positive examples to youth and young professionals across the country. In honor of this month, our podcast today will be highlighting the important role of mentors in the legal industry, the benefits of both being and having a mentor, and I do want to come back to both being and having a mentor, and some best practices when identifying and approaching potential mentors. We're joined today by two distinguished guests, Chris Campbell of Baker Hughes, an energy technology company, and Bradley Wine, a senior partner of the law firm Morrison & Forster. Chris is an international commercial law specialist who has uh, worked on several continents, uh, lives in several continents as well, as both external and, by the way, if that has tax implications, Chris, we can always edit that. But anyway, um, (laughs) and in-house counsel, Chris works as the Senior Litigation Counsel for Baker Hughes, an energy and technology company, where he represents Baker Hughes in international commercial disputes, spanning the various Baker Hughes sectors around the globe. Chris is active in the field, serving as co-chair for Racial Equity for Arbitration Lawyers, REAL, the ABA International Arbitration Committee, which I'm involved with with him, and serving in various capacities with his USCIB and the Green Arbitration Pledge. Chris is also the creator and host of his podcast, Tales of the Tribunal, which profiles the dynamic and interesting personalities working in international dispute resolution. He received his BA and JD from the University of South Carolina. Brad is the global co-chair of Morrison and Forster's litigation department. He's the managing partner of the Austin office and chair of the firm's Israel practice. He's the former co-chair of the firm's government contracts and public procurement practice. Brad represents a wide range of government contractors and other businesses in highly regulated industries with a focus on civil litigation, compliance, and counseling. He advises companies on a variety of U.S.-Israeli cross-border matters and regularly speaks in Israel on a full range of legal, business, and geopolitical issues. In January 2019, Brad was reappointed by the President of the United States to a five-year term on the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, the governing body of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He's also been appointed to the Council's Executive Committee 
and chair of the Museum's Committee on Holocaust Denial and state-sponsored anti-Semitism. Brad received his BA from American University, his JD from Vermont Law School. Brad and Chris, we are so delighted that you're with us today. We thank you for joining us. We're really looking forward to having a, a stimulating conversation on this topic of mentoring. Glad to have you guys here as, as well. And Chris, since uh, you're going to come on our podcast plugging yours, I think you've got to invite us uh, over to yours so that we can do the, do the same, get the social media thing cranked up. Hey, come on uh, down. We don't have like producers and stuff. It's just me and my little brothers. But hey, you're glad to come by. We're going we're to make that happen. Y'all come to Tales of the Tribunal sometime. Uh, we would like to do it around a Gamecocks uh, game. So if that's okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick one and come on down. Uh, in any case... Um, let me set the stage, guys, uh, for the conversation that we're going to jump into, adding on to what John said in his open. All attorneys, uh, young attorneys especially, have heard this advice. Find yourself a good mentor. It is no secret uh, the significant and lasting impact a uh, mentor can have on the trajectory of one's career, especially if one's looking at it the, at the beginning of a career as a junior associate. Advice from a more experienced lawyer when entering our profession can help junior attorneys bridge the gap uh, between law school and the legal practice, set them up for long-term success. Uh, our own, uh, and meaning the, the company, Origin Story, started with John and I uh, in a mentoring relationship. Uh, and even at that young age, I was able to mentor him from his status as a partner up to the policy committee and other things. So, um, I've, I've, John, I've always uh, been appreciative, Brian. Thank well, you. Well, you're 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 welcome. It's uh, it's the least I could do. Um, but no, uh, the the experience starting as a summer with John uh, as my mentor, and then moving on to some others at uh, at Sherman really benefited, and I think changed the trajectory of my career. And, and by the way. That's not mentor that stopped when I entered my first year or even when I left law for investment banking. So um, grateful, obviously, to, to John for that mentorship, uh, for our friendship. And Chris and Brad, as you know, you're familiar with our model. We've really tried to build that into the DNA of what we do for all our young lawyers. I want to move to COVID, right? And I think we know that the isolation of COVID-19, of the pandemic, has hampered the social and professional interactions of many uh, junior associates and has resulted in the rise of mental health challenges. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll give a nod to uh, Brad Morrison Forrester, one of those firms that's really standing out and leading the charge uh, on mental health. Um, we applaud those efforts. Against this backdrop, it's more important uh, than ever uh, to provide good mentorship to young attorneys um, and help them uh, navigate uh, this uh, changing and, and challenging legal workplace. So uh, as, as uh, my co-host uh, and co-founder, uh, John said, uh, we're really honored to have uh, Chris and Brad here today. Why don't I uh, just kick it off with a simple question for both of you and whoever would like to please uh, start. But why don't we ground the audience in definitions? Um, and so, Chris, what, what does mentorship mean to you? Uh, and then, Brad, you know, the same question. Sure. Thanks for that question, Brian. And I think that's an important place to start the conversation because your terms like mentorship, sponsorship, coaching, a lot of those types of things, and they're all sort of conflated. And it makes sense, right? Because they're very similar. When I hear the term mentorship, I think it goes directly to a relationship between one or two parties, generally speaking. And often it looks like working on one or both sets of sort of skills or development in a certain area. You might have mentorship when it comes to 
athletics, when it comes to professional development, to a number of skills. But what it really means is that both sides are looking to improve on something specifically within the realm of the mentoring relationship over a period of time. Um, There's both short-term and long-term mentoring, usually best results with long-term because you have a greater context and you get an appreciation where both sides are going. But it's more, I think, specifically identifying certain characteristics or certain goals that would like to be achieved and sort of molding those between those parties over time. It's more of a, I guess, a, a developmental sort of context within those two parties. I agree with Chris's formulation. I think that uh, these are ongoing relationships uh, that can be formalized through uh, a structure within an organization or can be informal. And frankly, I think the ones that that work the best are the ones that develop organically and, and start off informally and that you have the benefit of looking back over the course of your career or your life. And the you know, mentorships often become friendships and sometimes friends become mentors. But when I think about the mentoring dynamic, there's really kind of a one word that comes to my mind and that's selflessness. This is the opportunity, at least from a mentor's perspective, to be a resource for another person uh, and to meet them on their terms and, and to provide them with insight and support and opportunity. But you know, it's not the type of relationship that we have all probably experienced where, you know, you're sitting at the knee of the master and, you know, you hear the stories about, well, in my day, da, 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 da. Those are helpful too. Don't get me wrong. But I think the best mentors are ones um, that, that folks say, how can I help you? What is it that you need? What are the questions that you have? And to be a resource. And sometimes that means helping someone formulate those questions or or focus where they need help. But this is really all about the mentee. It's really all about the person that comes to you in that time and says, I want to learn from you. I need help from you. I, I, I want to establish a relationship. And as the mentor, we have to be willing to give ourselves to be present and to be responsive uh, to that dynamic. You know, John and Brad were joking about a little bit at the outset of the call, but I think mentoring can go from senior to less senior and vice versa. And that, you know, not knowing something, it doesn't have to be specifically just knowledge of a particular topic. I think it can also just be perspective, right? I think you can say you have a different life experience and what can I learn from that to help in this endeavor that has sort of brought us to this mentoring show? Yeah, and and I know that John's going to make a comment here real quick, and then obviously move into a question. Um, I was remiss in the in the opening. Um, so for the audience, obviously, John, <laughs> as you as you heard the the read in, is one of the co hosts. Um, but I think really here today, a third panelist as well. Um, we talk about our origin story with his mentorship, uh, which is ongoing, by the way. He's mentored countless uh, scores of uh, people over the years. Very good at it. Enjoys it. So I think um, we're with his permission. We'll obviously put him in the chair of guests too, because I think there are a lot of insights uh, that that John has from over the years that would be beneficial. Thank you. I also find that when I ask myself questions, uh, the answers come out better. So it's good if I do <laughs> the question go. and the answer. Um, <clears throat> anyway, one of the things I was I, there were two things I was going to add. One is you know being a mentor isn't just all feeling good. Some of it is tough love. If you're going to be a good mentor, you have to give people some bit of – there has to be an honest relationship where you feel comfortable that you can engage in tough love. Um, you have to build to that, 
But once someone trusts you, that can be the best mentoring you can do for somebody, telling them the things they don't want to hear or they're not processing from other people and they will from you because they trust you. That's one thing. Second thing is, and, and maybe this will come out later, but I'll throw it out for discussion at the appropriate point. I think the mentor gets a lot out of this relationship as well. It's not one way where only the mentor... I mean, one of the reasons I've done it and still do it and like to do it is I actually find it rewarding to me to mentor other people. And it's very enriching to see someone not necessarily taking your advice, but just thriving in part, maybe, and just in part because you help them along the way. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it, you said it really, really well. It, it, I'm Now this is my 28th year of practice. And I think one of the things that I get the greatest satisfaction from isn't a specific case that I won or an argument that I got to do or anything about the kind of output of the practice that way. It's about being able to go back over the course of that 28 years and think about the various people that I encountered and in particular, the various young attorneys that I got a chance to work with and develop this kind of uh, special mentoring relationship and take great pride. And some of it's an ownership pride, like you alluded to, but some of it's just, just downright proud of the attorneys, husbands, parents, wives, the people that they turned out to be. And that's, you know, in some ways, I think people that do a lot of mentoring, we're kind of like collectors, but instead of collecting things, we, we collect relationships. We collect these opportunities to interact with people in our lives. And there's an inherent value in that. And if you can find a way to do that, uh, and if uh, a, a mentee can find uh, a person that derives that benefit, that's that's phenomenal. But I think just to tie that up, the one thing that I get the most from is that I watch these young people, or they were young people when I was working with them, become mentors in their own right. There's kind of a pay it forward aspect to this, that if I benefited from this, if I'm standing on the shoulders of other people that were there for me, kind of unspoken expectation is that you're going to do that for other folks later in your career and in your life. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let me turn to mentoring and diversity. You know, something that comes up a lot in our discussions at Legal Innovators on diversity is the importance of establishing mentoring, mentorship relationships, and including from people who have different life experiences from your own. And that's not always easy. And everybody has to be willing to get to know somebody who may come from a different background from themselves. But I think it's essential in the profession that it happened. And I think it doesn't happen as much as it should because people are reluctant to go there. So I'd love to ask you uh, your experiences and advice in navigating that type of relationship and, and how can we do better? I'll start with Brad this time and go to Chris. I think there's an intentionality to, to that, uh, John. I, I think it is a recognition, if we're looking at this through a DNI lens, that we can't just assume that the, the relationship, the mentoring relationship is one that flows naturally to all people. Uh, and I think for many, the many of us that are focused on improving representation in the industry and making sure that we have 
uh, a an institution and a, and a practice of law that more broadly reflects the various communities uh, around around this country and around the world. That a mentor needs to go out of their way to say um, to to folks and particularly uh, attorneys, young attorneys that are joining the practice from underrepresented communities. Um, you you may already be paired with a mentor. I kind of want to be one of your mentors too. I want to develop this relationship with you. I have an open door policy. Let's just grab lunch. You start informally, but be be um, proactive. And it's it's kind of the responsibility, I think, of, of practitioners, partners, more senior associates and whatnot, to go find those relationships and suggest them and offer them. I would love junior associates to come and ask for them uh, and seek out mentors. And, and as an organization, we we try to do that for them by creating formal mentoring structures. But again, I think we always need to be looking out for folks that we make sure that through providing that resource, and we'll get into sponsorship later, but through providing that resource, we're able uh, to uh, make sure that they're not kind of wandering on their own and trying to figure things out that we could probably short shortcut for them, uh, but also provide them the ca- the kinds of relationships that frankly um, their peers are getting and more be- maybe more familiar with and more comfortable in. Uh, and and so going out of the way and and offering that and 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 developing that uh, separate and apart from the formal structures that we may have in a firm. Yeah. Um... I echo the sentiments that Brad just said, um, especially that part about it being intentional. I think um, sometimes you kind of just feel like uh, it'll just happen one day and you'll sort of wander around and certainly you've got a mentor. And I think that you have to be very specific about seeking mentors out. I think it's also really important to not get hyper fixated that mentors have to have, have the same background as you, that they have to look like you, that they have to be from the same place, because otherwise what you're doing is immediately shrinking the amount of people that could potentially be a mentor. And the world is wide and diverse. And so you should look for diversity in your mentors too. Um, you know, candidly speaking, as someone, um, as, a black man, as a black man growing up in South Carolina, looking for people that were doing the work that I wanted to do in international law, international business um, across the globe, um, that still is a small... <laughs> reality or pool of people that we're looking at. Um, we're looking to expand that. But if I said that I could only look to other Black men that had done it, my chances of finding a mentor would have been quite small. But I found mentors throughout the, my career um, that were instrumental to helping me do that. And that, that's something that I would urge listeners to be considerate and thoughtful of. And from a mentoring perspective, don't think that you only can reach out to people with your same background either, because otherwise it becomes a huge echo chamber and you only end up helping people that fit in that one category and that just it limits everyone and it's not the best that we can do well and it puts an an unfair burden on people uh you know diverse partners and senior associates to do all the mentoring of the diverse associates it's not fair and it's not any one group's job it's the it's all of our jobs in my view um chris just share if you don't mind how scary was it for you if if it was um, to reach out and develop these mentoring relationships with people who did come from different backgrounds from you in South Carolina because you wanted to get into international law? And how did it work out? Sure. So I'll, I'll share 
several small vignettes, really brief um, with each. Um, the first, one of the, the, the earliest mentors that I had when I was still in college uh, as an athlete at the University of South Carolina was a guy named uh, Joel Samuels. He's now the Dean of Arts and Sciences there. And he served on the Board of Athletics, um, the Student Athletic Advisory Board, and happens to be a, a well-known international law and arbitration practitioner in his own right. He was hearing the things that I would talked about and he kind of, I didn't know it was a mentor relationship, but he saw as in a proactive context, which we're talking about today, saw, oh, this is someone that needs mentoring. And Joel and I have very different backgrounds, but over the course of my career, he's gone on to help me think about um, doing a lot of different things in my career, leaving South Carolina, exploring opportunities of how, while I was in South Carolina, to do international work. Um, and that simply wouldn't have happened were it not for a mentor recognizing the need and taking a step. So that's the first one. The second one is someone that, John, that I know you and I know um, have a shared contact is uh, Danielle Hollywalker, who is the dean at um, Howard Law. She and I had, you know, as a mentor in a formal capacity, the way we're talking now, I, we had that relationship while she was at USC. But if not for her, I don't go to China and end up studying there during my last year of law school and starting my career there. And, you know, she gave that insight and perspective about things that I had the potential and optionality to do. But again, that doesn't happen if not for her. And then one of the, someone that we talked about a little bit in the pre-notes, and he'll laugh uh, hearing me, me say it this way, but is our mutual friend and contact, Mike McElrath. Mike has been a huge mentor and that's how, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. It was quite informal at first and then it became more and more and it became where, you know, when I want to soundboard ideas or kind of think about career development or even working, that's where it came to be. Now, he was also my boss at one point. So maybe that was a little self-interested too <laughs> at one point. But, you know, I, I shared those several examples just to give an idea that all three of those people have widely different background. And that's even more especially true with, with uh, Dean Holly Walker. Even as a Black woman, we still don't have the exact same background. And she gave perspective and ideas and direction at a time where I think it's not necessarily someone is signposting that they need mentoring, but as a more senior professional or a person that's a little bit down the line, you can recognize that. You don't have to wait for someone to say, hey, come mentor this person. Thank, thanks, Chris, for sharing that. Guys, uh, again, I, I think we'll ask uh, both of you, and, and I love that, Chris, about uh, Dean Holly Walker, one of our favorites. I'm doing a Master's of Divinity at night at Howard Divinity School, so I see her often, and she's also come on uh, and done webinars for us in that, and I you know, couldn't agree with you more. I see her reaching out and mentoring lots of folks, so it's good to hear that validation as well. Um, and so my question for you, for uh, both of you, is – how should an individual, um, and you've talked about, you hit on this a little bit, Chris, uh, in, your, in your last answer, but how should an individual seeking mentorship engage in a secure mentor uh, that hasn't been assigned to you? Maybe I'll go to Brad because, Brad, I think in your open, you talked about the best relationships being organic. Now, when I was paired up with John, obviously that works, but um, it, it doesn't always take hold, say, when you're assigned or somebody's assigned to you. In the case that you want to broaden your wings, what kind of advice would you have? Um, I think for for the the advice for a mentor, um, and I had this conversation at our partner retreat recently, is you know, go out and look for someone. Uh, go out and and get to know all of our new associates. I, I make a uh, make it a habit to get to know our our summer associates, get to know our our first years. If we have folks that are joining us through a fellowship. Uh, or through other programs, get to know them. So in the first instance, that effort to 
talk to, learn about, engage with that person. My hope is that that person comes away and says, hey, can we do this more often? You know, can we go grab lunch? Can we go grab a cup of coffee? Let's do that. And that's, you know, that's great. But if I don't get that and I see someone there and I think that they've got great potential and I want to make sure that person succeeds, I'm going to say, hey, and I've done this a, a few times with success. Um, I know you've already got a mentor through our Odyssey mentor program, whatever the program is. I'd like to be one of your mentors too. It doesn't have to be that that program, but I want on a regular basis for you and I to talk. I want to hear about the work you're doing. If you want to send me a, a document as a draft that you want me to look at, if you have questions about assignment, whatever it is, this is your time. We're going to put a half an hour on the calendar. If you want to do it by phone, if we're going to be virtual, fine. If you want to grab a cup of coffee, great. You want to come to my office or I'll come to yours, but that's your half hour uh, and or hour, however long you need. And we're going to talk about whatever you want. And um, I've done that with women attorneys. I've done that with black and brown attorneys. I've done that with LGBTQ attorneys. Um, I've done that with uh, military vets, you know, just a, a variety of folks that, you know, come to the practice from a different perspective and making sure that they've got what they need on day one to succeed. And you know the selfish piece of it is too, I'm getting aspects of relationships and, and learning for uh, perspectives that I don't have every day. These folks become a resource for me too. I sometimes bounce things off of them. So it does become a, a symbiotic relationship, but it's let's take some time to think about, get to know people. We talked about at the beginning of the, of the, the podcast, but you know, that becomes all the more difficult during COVID when we're not able to just walk down the hall or bounce into someone uh, in the elevator lobby or whatever and just say, hey, how are you? It takes, you have to take time to do this to, and to do it uh, purposefully and meaningfully. Yeah. And, and I guess, Chris, before you jump in, um, just Brad, especially because you did touch on the pandemic, did you see the same kind of things I was talking to uh, in the open? What our statistics show is that uh, from a mental health capacity, um, uh, associates across the board were impacted, but we saw um, even, I guess, more stark results uh, for diverse associates. And I'm wondering if you, um, one, saw those, and then two, maybe how you approach that uh, within your own mentorship. So um, the impact of the the pandemic was significant uh, from a mental health perspective, and uh, I don't want to understate it. We began a conversation about mental health awareness, and, and we can, uh, this is a topic in and of itself, but we, we began that conversation as an organization, as an institution, probably two years before COVID. You know, making uh, mental health and awareness a topic that we could talk about openly and candidly, providing training, resources, and things like that. So we went into the pandemic with that front and center already. And I think that prepared us to respond to the very unique circumstances that COVID presented for us. And that was helpful, but it also required us to say as partners, these are no longer casual exchanges. You have to take the time to be engaged with your associates on a meaningful level. And we have to be able to make sure we're checking in on people and, and seeing how they're doing. And I think more than most, we did well on that front. 
but it was still a challenging time. And it remains a challenging time because you've got a, a bunch of practitioners that knew what life was like before COVID and some of them that want to go back to that, or at least some aspects of it. Um, but I'm convinced that kind of we're at a, at a place and a time where we're not. And, and we're going to have to be flexible about how we approach the work environment, the relationship building, the training and development uh, component of the practice of law, because we're not going back to the way it was pre-pandemic. That creates an opportunity for us, uh, but it's scary for a lot of people as well. Uh, Chris, if you wanted to weigh in, I know John's got another question, but if, you, if you'd like to add, we would certainly love your, your perspective. I, I think Brad did a, a fine job. I, I think I wouldn't add really much more to that. I think the only thing I might say is when it comes to identifying or starting a mentoring relationship, I think sometimes it's being clear about, you know, what you as a mentee would like to know, you know, because oftentimes people that are serving as mentors have very limited time. And if you go to them and say, look, I'm curious about these specific things, I think it's easier for them to focus in and help you there than saying, okay, now this is something I need to sort of help probe and invest a lot of time and energy in, um, in terms of trying to help someone figure out their direction and how to get there versus I have a specific question um, about some things. So I think it's, it's about being flexible and open-minded about what that can look like on both ends. Yeah. And I, I just would add that um, sometimes you don't know you've established a mentoring relationship until when you look back at it. So you don't have to walk into somebody's office any more than you have to, you know, say to someone, will you marry me when you first meet them, um, <laughs> that will you be my mentor, you know, or in the book that my kids, we read to our kids, you know, <laughs> are you my mother? This is, uh, it evolves. So the way to potentially do it without taking some of the formality out of it is just to develop a personal relationship. So if you're on the mentee side, you're just asking people you begin to develop some trust relationship with for assistance and guidance. And you just pop into their office and ask them. And over time, that develops into a mentoring relationship. And you look back at it and say, that was one of my mentors. And vice versa, having an open door policy as a more senior person and even encouraging someone stop by if you have questions, you know, it just takes, it breaks the ice a little bit. I think if you don't try to label it too soon. John, I, I love that. I, I know you're going to move into your next question, but I just wanted to underscore that from the mentee perspective, right? Because you and Brad, um, or Brad said organic and you said, Hey, and, and maybe that disarms people and gives it a chance to, to have that organic nature. So, uh, I love your comment there. So what I'll do in order to move it along is just move a little bit further down um, and ask you both, what, what's the best advice you ever received from a mentor, um, if you're able to share that? Chris, we can start with you on this one. So I think it is a little bit of the tail end of, um, of one of the last things that I was saying. I think it's maybe some combination of being open-minded and flexible as to where you know, you couldn't go what your potential is. I think it's some level of being accountable. And when I say being accountable, I mean, not sitting back and waiting for things to happen. And I guess I can answer that with one more statement. Uh, Professor Ben Davis, who used to be at the University of Toledo, he retired a couple of years ago, is, uh, has mentored a ton of folks in international arbitration too. And his advice, you know, was that the life that you want to live out of law school begins while you're still in law school. And that is to say, Sometimes there's this feeling, especially as 
diverse minority lawyers that you have to wait for some magic thing to happen where all of a sudden, okay, now I can step into whatever it is that I want to do. And I think it's understanding that, no, I mean, you can start working on those things now. You can start living in that way now. And it's not sort of waiting in a reactive sense into pursuing those things. So I guess that's kind of the biggest advice, being open-minded, flexible, being accountable, and then stepping into those roles um, now, because, you know, that's oftentimes the only way that you might have a chance to realize that. Yeah. Uh, Brad? I, you know, the, some of these were from mentoring relationships that even predated law school and, you know, uh, as a college student and whatnot. But I think, you know, carrying it forward into the service industry, uh, which at the end of the day, that's what the legal industry, the legal industry is a, a service industry really indoctrinated into me was, you know, kind of always be of service, always dri- be driving value, always, you know, find a way to make yourself whether it's to a client, a team member, a partner, whatever it is, indispensable in a lot of ways. As, as I get older and mature in, 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 in some ways, my, my wife would say it's still in, in, in immature in lots of them, uh, you do see that same advice reflected in different ways. Uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix called The Defiant Ones. It's it's Jimmy Iovine and and Dr. Dre, and it talks uh-huh. about you know how these these men became exceptional uh, at what they do. And Jimmy Iovine is reflecting on uh, sweeping the floor of a production studio as kind of the way he made his way as the most prolific music producer and said, you know, always be of service, always find a way to be helping others around you in, in your industry. I would say it goes beyond your industry. It goes into your friendships. It goes into whatever occasion. I have someone that calls and say, hey, would you talk to my my nephew? He's thinking about going to law school, whatever. I always take those calls because it's a small world. It's karma. This is, you know, it's important, but I'm also the beneficiary of that. You know, I, uh, the first in my family to become a lawyer and someone who was the general counsel of a, of a company uh, that was like a friend of a friend agreed to talk to me uh, as a law student. Well, eventually that's the introduction that I got my summer associateship from. Uh, this guy didn't know me from a hole in the wall, um, but I can trace back my first job as a lawyer to that individual's willingness to talk to me and then to send a note to his attorney at Holland and Knight. And they interviewed me and you know those are ways of opening doors. So, But I, I think that from my perspective as a lawyer, giving advice to other young lawyers, it's, it's find a way to be adding value and to be of service to others. Yeah, I don't know how universal this advice would be, but the best advice I ever got very, very early in my legal career was you might seriously consider doing something else for a living. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I can only say this, that I, had, I really wish I had listened to that mentor who gave that advice, uh, and it took me 40 years. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> As you say, you did okay, John. <laughs> He's finding his stride now with his second career, right? Yeah, the multiverse <laughs> version of John is like not a lawyer at all. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. Um, anyway, Brian, I know you have a, a, a question you'd like to ask. Yeah, I look, I think we've hit on a lot of this, and maybe I'll fine-tune, right? Because I think that the, the – the, you guys you know, are so good at this. That's why we asked you to come on. Uh, you've anticipated some of the questions. And, and so the next one kind of reverses the roles, right? And talks about 
what advice do you have for mentors, you know, maybe new to this, maybe having apprehension about it? I think that the way that I want to phrase the question and then, you know, you guys please answer in any way um, that you'd like are, are two things. And, and John, if you wouldn't mind, you know, please come in, especially on the second part of this. And that is Brad says be of service. And I love that. And I think, you know, people in the main would say, fine. Yeah, I'd like to be at service. But I'm freaking busy, right? Like I'm going to Israel. I'm going over, you know, to some of the places you talked about, Chris. I'm, you know, on this arbitration or case or whatever. So how would you how would you help them find the signal to noise ratio? Meaning, okay, I can't do mentoring for twelve hours, but I can do it for a little bit. And then part B, this is you know really really setting up John, but take any part of the question you want. Um, it, you said it a little bit, but what does the mentor take away from it. So I, I, I throw that out and whoever would like to jump in first, please do. So I think from the mentor's perspective, the piece of advice that I would give is I think it's a balance between meeting people where they are and understanding that, you know, to some extent, if I showed up at a high school or started talking to a freshman law student or freshman college student about, hey, did you know you can do international arbitration? Did you know you can be a corporate lawyer? Uh, you know, they, they might say, get out of here. Why, why is this old dude talking to me? Um, but I think, you know, breaking it down for them is, you know, saying what's on their mind, understanding if they've approached you, hearing what they're saying and being responsive to that. And at the same time, not projecting whatever goals, whatever ambitions you might have or where you could see that person going and not making that like sort of substituting what they've said to you for, um, you know, where, where you sort of give your guidance and advice. I think that's a, a good one. And then secondly, I think it's constantly seeing the, seeing it as a two-sided relationship. That's something we've talked about a couple of times today, that as much as you might be mentoring them, being open and listening to how they're mentoring you and perspective that they're providing to you and what you can learn from that experience um, because I think we all have mentors, whether we know it or not, in a lot of different capacities. So um, it's not just to assume that you've reached Yoda status and that there's nothing else for you to learn. <laughs> I, I really like this, uh, uh, your answer there, not to take too much of, of John's thunder, but I think he probably won't say it, so I, I will. And I think it takes uh, you know a pretty special person. Uh, Brad hinted on this as well. When you talk about what you can learn from the mentor, right? I think many people and say, I mean, we're all diverse in some way, but, you know, folks that aren't uh, diverse in the in the typical categories. Right. I think for uh, you to be a better mentor, I mean, and, you know, audience, you can't see us, but, you know, uh, John's a little bit older than uh, me, um, uh, Jewish male. Uh, I am uh, much younger, um, black male. Uh, and the point that I'm getting at is. I think the mentor can do an even better job of elevating the mentee and, and themselves in their understanding if they're willing to listen and understand and appreciate that person's lived experience, which may not be theirs. Um, and I, you know, again, and that ability to listen and empathize, uh, Chris, as you're highlighting, I think is extraordinarily important. Yeah. I just want, I, oh, go ahead, go Brad, ahead. and just come back to the word empathy later. But go ahead. Yeah, it's it's an important one, and it's it's. Uh, it's so for folks that high, have high EQ uh, and, and folks that do this naturally, you know, just can gravitate to this. They, they, they formulate relationships. A lot of lawyers are, are good at what they do because they have high EQ. And it, there's a correlation there that sometimes with 
their ability uh, to be good mentors just naturally. But we had this meeting in November. It was the first partnership meeting where we got together globally as a partnership since COVID. And we did a, a session just on promoting meaningful engagement with associates. And the way we kind of framed it or started it was to say, okay, I want you all just to close your eyes for a second and think about the person or people in your lives, in your career that were there for you, that helped you, that gave you the advice, that you felt comfortable enough asking uh, for their assistance, that, that you leaned on, that you respected and things like that. Now, open your eyes. You now are that person and you have a responsibility to pay that forward. You need to be able to recognize and honor what that other person before when your eyes were closed did for you by doing that for, for others. We talked about the law being a service industry. Well, like any other service industry, our number one asset, our, our number one uh, value proposition is our, our people. And if you only look at people as fungible billing units that are out there to review documents or churn drafts and things like that, that's a business. You can you can do that. You can't sustain that. You can't have long-term uh, uh, relationships, professional relationships with folks, unless you're you're developing and honoring the entirety, the whole person that is there, giving of their time for the organization, for the clients, uh, for you as a partner or as a senior attorney. So it, it's also very much our responsibility to manage people well. And the only way you can do that is if, if you're investing your time beyond your billable hour to ensure that this person is getting their questions answered, feels heard, is, is doing things purposefully, uh, and um, is growing personally and professionally. And that's great, Brad. And I just want to pick up on on the empathy point. And maybe lawyers, uh, even if they're great relationship people, don't always come across as all that empathetic. But I think they, if you're effective at what you do, you probably are very empathetic. And um, one of the things for me on a personal level, it was always, it isn't, has always been easy to empathize with people who like me came from a background where I hadn't been exposed to this. So I can remember how clueless I was at the beginning and how I had to fake it and figure it out as I went along and pretend I knew things that I didn't. I don't mean in the ultimate advice I gave. I mean, along the way before I got to the advice. So it's always been easy for me to empathize that way. But I think, as you said, for lawyers, the most important thing is not to forget where you came from. It's very easy to sort of 10, you didn't have any of the doubts. You didn't have any of the concerns. You were always great at what you did. You have to be honest with yourself. That just isn't the case. It isn't the case for virtually anyone. I don't care what their pedigree was. And you just can't forget that. You have to remember somebody helped you along the way. And if you can keep that in mind, then it shouldn't be very hard for you to help somebody behind you. So I think what you said is great. We need to move into my favorite part of the segment, which is the pet peeve segment. Um, uh, since I've been unsuccessful in getting it eliminated in 22 episodes, um, but I'll let Brian, 
I'll let Brian tee it up. Uh, John, uh, thank you. I, I, I wore him down and it only took me 20, uh, 20 episodes. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a give uh, on my part at some point. Um, but as John was saying, uh, we, we, this is just uh, something to humanize and try to have a little bit of fun with. And this could be something that annoys you, something you find amusing, um, observation that you want to make. I think mine, and I'll, I'll go, you know, slightly off track to start, and, and just say, in keeping with the with the mentorship theme here, and I try to start every year and every every day with a little bit of gratitude. So um, I, I do want to say, in in this world where we're so busy and it's easy to complain, there's a lot to be grateful for, uh, and I think John and I, um, and not being just Pollyannish since you guys are here, um, are grateful for folks uh, like both of you who help us do this um, to our clients uh, and partners that have elevated us and in so doing, open the doors to a lot of attorneys who are going to be terrific at, at what they do. So I just want to thank both of you and, and those in the audience who may who may listen. Now, my pet peeve that I experience almost on every trip, and I just went to New York and came back, is the state of Amtrak Acela. So... You're going to charge me four or five hundred bucks a round trip, which is, hey, there's an expense to doing business. I don't have to drive. I can ostensibly I can work. Now, uh, I can't work, though, if the phone cuts off uh, on every other sentence uh, and the Internet is uh, intermediate, uh, intermittent, excuse me, and I will not get graphic. Uh, don't worry, audience. But uh, the state of those bathrooms, um, uh, I think Amtrak should be <laughs> embarrassed. So <laughs> I, I just got to say for a premium, give me a little bit of a premium service. So that's uh, th- those are my pet peeves. Uh, Brad, what do you got for us? Oh, uh, so it's funny because my wife and I used to joke, this is dating me a little bit. My my overarching pet peeve, which I'll, I'll tie in in a second, used to be when you drove on a toll lane and there was no such thing as an easy pass, and you had to actually hand someone change to make the toll. Um, there was a toll attendant there and their job was to have their hand out, take your money. And if you needed to make change, if you were really in a bad way and you, you didn't have the right change they make change and they take it and you're on your way and my wife and i used to go on road trips and we'd go to the toll booth guy and for whatever reason being in the toll booth that day was just not high on his or her list and like this was not going to be a prompt transaction uh and and my wife would look at me just kind of steaming you know, like honest to God. So it's become the kind of the you had one job type of thing. And now where wherever we are, where my, my wife knows my patience is is lacking, she'll look at me and she goes, this is kind of the modern day toll booth, isn't it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and then immediately it gets me to deescalate. And I'm no longer the asshole uh, waiting <laughs> and being impatient and having a Karen like moment, which I don't want to have ever. <laughs> That's good. Love that you worked in a uh, uh, reference to Karen's. Yeah, so uh, thank you for that, Brad. I always have to shoehorn a Karen reference. <laughs> uh, Chris, what do you, what do you have? So I'm gonna. It's just gonna be a recency effect sort of thing because it's just happened to me a couple of times in the last day. Because I happen to find myself in different countries on a regular basis, my credit card companies never believe that it's me. i can see that i can see that (laughs) and sometimes on occasion you'll try and make a transaction that is so egregious they'll say hey we locked your card like (laughs) you know you know call us or you know you need to get in contact we're not we're trying that and it's like i'm just trying to book a flight (laughs) 
exactly. I'd like to come uh, home. <laughs> and it, that is, and that's such the, that is the quintessential first world problem. But I, I would, I don't know. There's got to be someone out there, you know, some smart person trying to figure out how we can streamline that process because. Um, Every time they're gonna, they're like, oh, well, weren't you just here? And now you're there? Okay, now we're freezing everything. <laughs> <laughs> so mine, I usually have a techno- technology-related uh, pet peeve when I can come up with one since uh, the whole concept baffles me. But um, this is much more rudimentary than that, and it involves uh, the vegetable section of any grocery store. I don't go there that often because I do everything possible not to eat vegetables. And when I have to eat them, I don't really know what they're called. So I can't tell you the number of times my wife has sent me to get a cucumber and I've come home with a zucchini or vice versa. And uh, I mean, I know they're both green and they seem approximately the same. But so anyway, my point is I'm a novice when I'm in there. And when I have to go and I have to put something into one of those bags, those little vegetable bags that you're supposed to be able to easily slide off the thing and tear off, I cannot open the bag no matter what I do. I mean, (laughs) it takes me at least 15 minutes. I'm blowing on it. I'm shaking it. I'm wetting my hand. I'm doing everything possible, and I can't get the bag open. So usually what I do is I wrap the vegetable around several bags and hope that the outsides of several bags, (laughs) since I know I'm not going to be able to get it inside the bag. And my wife has tried to teach me the trick, but uh, I, I can't master it. So I wish they, you know, with all the technology in the world, can't they come up with a bag that you could just open and put a vegetable in more easily. This sounded like four different Seinfeld routines. Like, who, who are these exactly. people that are making these bags? That's that's exactly right. And and John, I'm going to solve this, and you can thank me later. Um, in the vegetable section, um, I know you're rarely there. They have a mister, and that mister comes on every few minutes to keep the vegetables moist. You go when it's misting. Put your hand under that; it'll be wet. The bag will open immediately. Oh, is that what you Problem do? Problem solved. That is okay. That's I didn't one know way. Mister was for. I thought the mister was the man who worked there. <laughs> and, and sometimes, they, and sometimes they are. Uh, with, with that, I'm going to throw this to John, who usually uh, closes us out. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you again to our guests, Chris Campbell and Bradley Wine, for joining us today and sharing your wisdom and your insight, and in some cases, your personal experiences. Um, Brian and I thank all of you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We wish everyone a happy National Mentoring Month, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com. For even more insights, you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. In the meantime, be safe, and we look forward to talking to you at our next episode.